0: There's also changes that we see happening at local levels. So we see that communities that would normally use ice roads and that would normally travel across the ice in the winter and during other seasons being unable to do so safely. So there are different um, different means that are being used. So we see actually an increase in local um, aircraft usage to get around because traditional ways of moving around are just not as safe as they used to be.
1: Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today we're talking about land and marine conservation and what it means to protect our land and oceans and highlighting a lovely Canadian organization while we learn, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, known as CEPAWS. First up, I have Alison Ronson with me. She's the National Parks Program Director at Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Sciences, a JD and an MA in International Affairs with a focus on environmental governance, before joining CPAWS, Allison was a lawyer in a full-service law firm in Toronto, where she was an associate in both the business law group and banking, finance, and insolvency group. She has also worked on a variety of science and conservation projects, including the promotion of wetland conservation in Ontario, the genetic study of songbirds in Western Canada, the impact of climate change on Arctic soil and plant processes, habitat and population studies on Arctic seabirds, and waste management. Allison, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me, Rochelle. So, really quickly, what is the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society? Just so that everybody listening has some understanding of uh, what your team does.
2: Sure. Well, CPAWS is um, a nationwide environmental charity, and we really focus on protecting Canada's public lands and waters for the benefit of Canadians. Um, and so that we leave a natural legacy for future generations of Canadians as well.
1: So day to day, what does the work of your team look like? Um, Are you do you spend most of your time kind of lobbying and coordinating? Do you have people on the ground in these places? I'm just interested to get an idea of kind of what the day to day for your team looks like. It
2: is incredibly varied, and it depends where you are. So we do have chapters. We have about 13 chapters across the country in almost every province and territory. And they're really the folks that are on the ground working with provincial and territorial governments and communities to secure new protected areas. And then we also have policy-focused conservation folks in our national office who work more on federal policy work. And so it runs the gamut from influencing legislation and policy to working with local communities to try and establish new protected areas in local regions.
1: So I'm assuming a lot of the donation and funds that your team raises really goes towards um, making sure the people can continue to do this work.
2: That's right. Uh, The majority of our funding goes towards conservation work and conservation work is done by people. And so... Um, we spend a lot of money hiring uh, people who are experts in their field, who are passionate about conservation and who want to make a difference.
1: Awesome. So I do want to talk about Canada and protected land. So mm-hmm. how important is land conservation in Canada? I mean, obviously, <laughs> land conservation is important. And in particular, in Canada, it strikes me that we have a lot of land. We do. And people, I think,
2: perceive in Canada that our land is intact and it's there and it's never going to go away. But in fact, we're seeing a decline in our ecosystems. And so land protection here in Canada is just as important as it is in other places where we know there are demonstrated or or more demonstrated impacts from human encroachment. there's there is currently a decline worldwide in ecosystem health and biodiversity, and Canada is not immune. So we are seeing that because of habitat fragmentation, our biodiversity here in Canada is on the decline.
1: I think it's, um, I mean, I'm a a Canadian living abroad right now. I live in the UK. But as a Canadian, it We have a lot of wilderness left, I think, especially having lived in Europe now and seeing comparatively how little is left. And I think it's really easy for Canadians to rest on our laurels a bit in terms of conservation because – comparatively, we've got a lot of land within our borders, not that many people by comparison, and our people are highly focused in really specific areas. So if you don't think too carefully about it, it's really easy as a Canadian to kind of look at a map and look at where the population and be like, we're fine. Look at all this land no one's living in. Yeah, absolutely. If you look into, if you look at a map of
2: Canada, you would probably look at northern Canada and think, Wow, that is an expanse of wilderness. We're never going to run out of wilderness, um, but actually, we're we are finding that that's not the case. Even in the farthest reaches, you know, of northern Canada, we're seeing impacts from industrial activity and habitat fragmentation. Um, but you're right. So the conservation sort of job that we have to do here in Canada is different than what you have to do in Europe um, and in other more developed or historically developed places. So in the UK, in Germany, in France, their job is actually a lot harder than ours. They have the task of protecting and restoring land that has already been developed and settled for generations. Whereas here in Canada, we really have the opportunity to protect some of the last remaining intact wild places in the world.
1: It's kind of interesting, um, just as a little bit of a sidebar, in talking to some people here in the UK in particular, there's this um, weird situation that definitely would never occur to me as a Canadian until I moved here, where they're faced with, there's parts of the, of the country that have been cultivated for so long by people that there's actually now habitat that requires that kind of cultivation. So it becomes a really difficult choice of do we continue to keep these species and this kind of what we think of as a cultivated ecosystem? Things like hedgerows, as an example, are a really, really good example or coppiced woods that have been like that for so long that the ecosystem has really adapted and, and uh, created a niche there. So to try mm-hmm. and return it quote unquote to the wild would actually completely change an ecosystem that in places has been there now for, you know, 2000 years. So mm-hmm. uh, in a place that has had people in it in such concentrated ways for so long, I can definitely see that there are very different kinds of conservation questions than that would come up in a place like Canada. Mm-hmm. I do want to be
2: careful, though, because we have also had people in Canada for, you know, tens of thousands of years, and their impact on the landscape has also left its mark. Mm. And so we see in Western Canada, for example, you know, the use of fire to um, moderate the ecosystem for Indigenous peoples, we see the use of bison um, herding, to sort of regulate grassland growth. And that's all influenced by Indigenous peoples in Canada for the last, you know, however long. And, and so that's an important consideration even here in Canada.
1: It's a really good point, something that we don't really think about when we think about protecting land in particular. We don't think about protecting the people part. We sort of pull out all the people and then just let it return to the wild. But even in a place like Canada, you're right. People have been interacting with the land as part of the ecosystem for a really long time.
2: They have. And and we have noticed in Canada, I mean, we have a history in Canada, especially in our national parks, of not recognizing the integral relationship between people and their natural environment. Um, for, for a century when national parks were created here, the people who lived in those areas were sometimes forcefully driven out. And what has resulted is actually, you know, environmental and ecological regimes that are no longer sustainable because the human touch was removed. So, for example, fire, uh, once indigenous people were driven off the landscape in Banff and Jasper was highly suppressed. And that has led to a situation where you now have um, ecosystems that are susceptible more way more susceptible to fire than they would have been had there been this sort of cyclical, circular use of fire um, to manage the landscape.
1: And I believe that potentially also has some of why the pine beetle has been able to make such headway into parts of the Rocky Mountains.
2: Yes, that's part of it. There, the, the mountain pine beetle is an interesting one. It was thought for many, many years that it would never cross the Rocky Mountains. They thought the mountains were high enough to be a barrier from BC into Alberta, but actually they came across on um, wind gusts. And so now the combination of fire suppression and forestry leading to forests that are all similar ages in Alberta have left Alberta, um, yeah, susceptible to pine beetle infestation.
1: So in a place like Canada, what do we mean by land conservation? Or when we say things like protect the land, what state are we looking to put the land into or try and keep it in?
2: (sighs) So when, with the work that CPAWS does, we like to adhere to the protection standards and criteria that are set by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or the IUCN. Mm-hmm. They have a standard um, definition of a protected area, which is a defined area that is set aside specifically for and managed for the conservation of nature. And within that definition, there are criteria. Um, different categories that a that a park or a protected area can fall into, and really it it depends what where the park is and what it's going to be used for so those categories can range from an ecological reserve where there's no human um, impact to you know a national park where you have some um, tourism and some ecotourism and some visitation to an area that may have some harvesting of natural resources, but for cultural purposes. The the sort of standard theme that runs through all these categories is that industrial activity is prohibited from inside the protected area. Um, Industrial and commercial activities are prohibited. So you have a Piece of nature that is managed primarily for the conservation of biodiversity, um, and then you know certain places might have more visitation versus others.
1: Got it. So I'm assuming, um, as a Western uh, Canadian, I think of places like Banff National Park and Jasper National Park. Do those count as as protected lands? they
2: do they they fall into a certain category that the IUCN has set out as national parks here in Canada and we work really hard to help uh, Parks Canada make sure that they are managed properly for nature and don't experience too much over visitation although especially in Banff and Jasper those are major concerns of our organization
1: i can imagine they're definitely hot tourist spots not just for uh people local to western canada but internationally Absolutely. There's
2: um, a few million visitors to Banff and Jasper every summer. They are the two flagship national parks in Canada that everyone wants to go to. And for good reason, they are beautiful. There's iconic wilderness. There's amazing wildlife that if you're lucky, you'll, you'll get to see in a safe way. Um, And yeah, I mean, I, I think they really represent Canada to the world.
1: I don't want to focus too much on national parks because I know there's lots of different types of protected land, but I also know that as more people in the world kind of join a middle class target that allows them to travel internationally. I have heard different stories from different parts of the world for places like Yosemite um, and other places like in Banff and Jasper that the amount of tourism is starting to become in places really problematic from a just a land protection standpoint because there's just too many feet in and out.
2: Yes, that is a problem in many places. The U.S. um, has noticed that in in a few of its national parks. And we are starting to wonder if that's a problem, especially in Banff. Um, There was a study done in 2015 that showed something like 8 billion visits to parks per year, which is... Which is super. It means people are really getting out into nature and experiencing parks. But you're right. Around the world, we're also seeing that the managers of those parks have to implement things like quotas, uh, mass transportation options, you know, higher fees to deter, I guess, people from, from over visiting. And um, it's something that we'll have to consider and, and that we do use already in Canada. Like, So we are seeing in Canada, uh, you know, some steps towards regulating the amount of visitation we have. For example, the West Coast Trail in Pacific Rim National Park in British Columbia allows a certain number of people to start the trail every day. It's not a free-for-all. You can't just hike the trail whenever you want. You have to book your time with Parks Canada. And similarly in Banff, Um, You have to book a shuttle to go to a certain lake in order to visit um, if you if you want to go there, because it's a highly sought after destination. So there are some places where we're seeing the need to regulate visitation. um, But for example, in the States, they've already started doing this a lot more. Some parks, you can't even drive in, you park outside the gate, and they take you in for your visit.
1: Just to help control some of the amount of traffic that comes in and out. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm.
2: What we need to avoid is a situation where we're really loving our parks to death. Mm. And my, you know, I also argue that if people really want to see these parks, obviously, they're popular, we then we definitely need to be creating more. I mean, that's, that's the takeaway for me.
1: Oh, I love that takeaway. I was just about to say it must be a really difficult trade off. It is in my head anyway to think that one of the best tools in our arsenal to get people to understand how important protected land is, is to have them go to some of these amazing places and see it for themselves to kind of viscerally understand it versus, you know, having to sort of show people away or decline them or make it expensive for some people too expensive for them to come. But I love the idea of clearly we need more. That sounds like a great solution. (laughs) That's the solution. And we definitely do need more. And that's not just for people,
2: but also for species, other species. Um, You know, there's a growing scientific consensus that we need to be protecting somewhere between 30 and 70% of different ecosystems in order to sustain our well-being and also ensure the survival of many other species on earth so we just you know empirically need need to create more protected areas globally
1: so how do we pick which areas to protect and which not to because I think probably there are a lot of people out there that would say protect as much as possible, but we also live in a world where that's not necessarily realistic, certainly today. So Mm -hmm. given especially a country the size of Canada, what helps you understand what are the key priorities of places to protect or places that really need the focus of an organization like CPAWS?
2: Yeah, thanks, Rochelle. That's a great question, because we don't just want to, say, protect 30% and plunk that protection down anywhere. In the past, the the protected areas that we do have were chosen because they were easy. There were no conflicting land uses. um, They tend to be small, and they tend to be far apart they were often sometimes chosen like Banff and Jasper because they were beautiful and um, the government wanted people to visit them and see these beautiful places. But we have, we have new tools, you know, in our toolkit that allow us to plan and choose new places wisely so that we are protecting for biodiversity and not just for area. So we are really encouraging land use planning that takes into account the, the, richness and variety of species that are on the landscape different ecosystems that we have across the country at varying scales Um, also factoring in things like potential future natural resource harvesting urban um, sprawl road development restoration these are all factors that we need to consider When we are picking places for protection. And so our chapters across the country, they individually work to figure out the best places within their province or territory for protection. Um, And we're starting to do that at a, at a national scale as well. And then, of course, one of the most important things um, in Canada now is that we recognize some of the cultural Aspects to protection, and so we're increasingly working with indigenous communities and indigenous governments to make sure that protection is done in a respectful way.
1: In reading some of the uh, um, some of the reports and content on your website, uh, and that was sent to me in preparation for this interview, um, one of the things that did uh, that that did kind of stand out to me in a few places is um, call outs to making sure we're protecting area networks. So can you dig in a little bit to as to what we mean when we say to protect area networks?
2: Mm -hmm. So, as I said before, many of our protected areas are small, and they're far apart from each other. Um, so they don't necessarily reinforce one another when it comes to safeguarding biodiversity. So a protected area network is really the concept that you're building protected areas and landscape in between protected areas that support nature conservation. And so you might have two protected areas that are separated by, you know, what is typically called a working landscape And to create a network between them, you would maybe want to put buffer zones around them that have special management, or you would want to create a corridor between those protected areas that allows for wildlife migration, even if it's not a legally designated protected area. And in an ideal world, that network would span the whole country so that you have species that are able to move east-west, north-south. And, you know, every other diagonal direction in between.
1: Yeah, migration struck me as one that would be really difficult to take into account, especially when I was looking at the existing map of the protected areas in Canada, we've got a lot of migratory um, animals uh, in the country, and it doesn't really help for them to have one small spot, because a lot of them have quite large ranges.
2: That's right. Species like wolves and caribou migrate, um, a long way. Or if they're not migrating, they're just moving around on the landscape for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. So there are initiatives in the U.S. and Canada to create these corridors of protected areas and special management areas that allow species like wolves to migrate. And a great example of that is Yellowstone to Yukon. Um, working from Yellowstone Park in the US up through the Rocky Mountains into southern Yukon. And then another one is um, Algonquin to Adirondacks, which is trying to connect sort of eastern forests um, between Ontario and uh, New York.
1: I remember as well, uh, as I was reading through the materials, one of the other bits that stood out to me about protecting area networks was also being able to protect Um, these networks in part to allow the ecosystem to respond to climate change.
2: Yes, that's certainly true. So if we had the ideal protected area network on our landscape right now, in theory, you know, changes in the ecosystem because of climate change might not have um, a detrimental impact Because if you're protecting enough of the entire landscape and the ecosystems change, you would see, you know, a change across the whole country and the animals would be allowed or would be able to adapt and migrate um, across the landscape. But right now, since our our areas are so fragmented we're not sure if that's if that's going to happen. Of course, it's totally unpredictable how ecosystems are going to change. There has been modeling that shows which areas may be climate refugia for different species, um, but it's it's a total crapshoot right now. So, in theory, a, a great network of protected areas would protect us against climate change. But I'm, I just think the science is not a hundred percent certain yet how ecosystems are going to change. So in the absence of that certainty, we need to sort of apply a precautionary principle and protect our landscape just in case.
1: Yeah, I mean... The world, we humans like to think of the world as kind of static, and we often forget that it's not, especially things like ecosystems and climate, which do have a natural shift even outside the kind of human effect that we're having on the planet right now in climate change. There is a push and pull and a shift and a morphing of what climate and ecosystems do. So in our very human way, we kind of look at an area on a map and say, that area, that area, we protect because it's got these important species in it. And maybe that's true for 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, maybe even 500 years, but it could be that that area will not necessarily be the best high value for protection at a certain point, because perhaps the things or creatures or ecosystem that we were trying to protect, and that carefully boarded, marked out area will have shifted somewhere else.
2: Well, that's yeah, that's very true. Uh, You know, I think the modeling shows in general kind of a shift of southern ecosystems northwards in at least in Canada. But there's no way we can predict how those southern ecosystems will react with different underlying soil conditions or geology. Um, So it's it's really kind of a see how things progress and hope that we make some good choices kind of scenario.
1: So given the areas in Canada that are currently protected, can you give us a few examples of some places that CPAWs see as high value targets to put protections on or put make protections for?
2: Sure. I mean, we, we have chapters across the country, and they are all working on some fantastic places. Um, it's hard, it's hard to know where to start. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think one, one, Great example of, you know, where we need to be doing a better job on protection is around Wood Buffalo National Park. Um, It's already protected, uh, but we, we need protected areas outside of that park so that the activities that are happening outside the park don't have a negative impact on the ecosystem within the park and that's also the same in Gros Morne National Park in Newfoundland so we're we're seeing you know similar issues but in totally different areas of the country um for then there's also places where we don't have you know, protected areas that are already representing certain ecosystems. So, for example, in southern British Columbia, there's a new proposed national park reserve called the South Okanagan Similkameen. And that's something that CPAWS has been working on for years and years. And um, if it's protected, it will protect southern grasslands in Canada, which are underrepresented in our protected areas network. And it will protect something like 50 plus species at risk in that area. So it's it's an important example of a place we haven't protected that really needs something down there.
1: High on your wish list.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right.
1: I also want to talk before we close, and I, I'm aware we're running a little bit short of time about some of the international targets that have been put in place. Because um, as I think we all know, certainly all the listeners to this show know, it's not just about protecting land and biodiversity and the ecosystems of Canada for the people living within Canada's borders. There are much broader things at stake for all people uh, who live on this fine planet of ours.
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, we're the second largest country in the world by area. Um, And we have 20% of the earth's remaining wild forest, the boreal forest, which really stretches from the Yukon all the way to Newfoundland. Um, And we're seeing that forest impacted heavily by forestry and mining and oil and gas activity. Um, And that's going to impact people globally. Um, if it's one of the last you know remaining forests, we also are stewards of twenty four percent of the earth's wetlands. Wetlands are incredibly important for storing um, terrestrial carbon. So if we continue to allow our wetlands to be degraded, we're allowing more carbon to be released into the atmosphere. So we actually have a global responsibility to increase our, you know the protection of our landscape here in Canada. and And so far, we, We haven't done a great job compared to other countries that are both similar in size to us and similar in economy.
1: So what are the international targets and where do they come from? So the targets are set under
2: the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity. And the ones that we're working under right now first arose in in 2010, in Aichi, Japan. They're called the Aichi Targets, and there's 20 of them. Uh, but the one that we're, we push on a lot here in Canada is Target 11, which calls for 17% of um, land and inland water to be protected by the end of 2020 and 10% of ocean territory. Uh, so that, you know, we're, it's 2020 right now. We have about a year to try to achieve that target. But we're also really invested in making sure that the next targets under the Convention on Biological Diversity are ambitious and reflective of you know, the scientific consensus, which is calling for more nature protection. And so what we're really hoping for is that the next targets um, set under the convention aim for at least 30% protection by 2030, on the way to half.
1: So how is Canada doing on the current set of targets? Are we doing reasonably well? Are we way behind? Are we way ahead? We have taken
2: some steps in the last couple of years to improve, but we are still behind. So the global average right now is about 15% of um, you know a country's area protected, and Canada sits at about 12.6, and we're also below every other country in the G7. So countries that have you know similar economies to us, and we lag behind most of the other large area area-based countries in the world. So Brazil, China, Australia, we we are behind all of them.
1: Is there a particular reason Canada's behind um, that we can call out? Or is it one of those kind of complex, lots of different factors involved?
2: Well, I wonder, actually, if this you know goes back to the beginning of our conversation, where we both recognize that if you live in Canada, you think there's an abundance of never-ending wilderness. And so you don't see that imperative to protect it. I think part of it is that. And then the other part of it is that we have a history of natural resource extraction, starting from, you know, fur bearing animals um, in the 17 and 1800s. And that that history and that legacy, it still exists. We are a country that harvests wood and oil.
1: So it, there's a Uh, almost like a a deeper cultural change here that is tied to a lot of um, what our kind of identity is as a country and what we give to the world, basically. That's right. You know, if, if we want to talk about
2: it in economic terms, we really need to start valuing the ecosystem services that these wild places provide to us, like clean air, clean water, and carbon sequestration. And, you know, maybe we need to look at we I mean, we already promote Canada as a place for tourism because of its wildness. And maybe we need to do a little bit more of that in a responsible way so that our economy is diversified beyond natural resource extraction towards safe, um, you know, responsible ecotourism.
1: And one more thing that's more um, as an interest from my perspective as someone who is doing some of this reading and trying to learn some of where Canada is as a country, but also globally where things are at, as someone who's kind of living and breathing this, uh, these ideas, the conservation effort on a day to day basis, the targets that have been put forward internationally are, are those, do you think, aggressive enough? Are they not aggressive enough if we hit them? Um, I, I'm interested to hear what we think about those targets in general, um, setting aside for a second how well we're doing at trying to achieve them. Are they, are they kind of valid targets? So the first targets were set in
2: 1987 with something called the Brundtland Report. And the target was 12% protection with the rest of the landscape managed with sort of conservation principles in mind. It soon became apparent that 12%, which was just an arbitrary target, uh, was not going to be enough. And so in 2010, when they negotiated the Aichi targets, they chose 17% and 10%. But again, these were... These were not scientific uh, targets. They weren't evidence-based. They were political negotiated targets. And so now what we're really pushing for with the next round of targets is that we We use evidence based decision making and listen to the scientific consensus, which is telling us that we need to be protecting between 30 and 70 percent of different ecosystems. So we're hopeful that the next round of targets under the UN Convention on Biological Diversity will be more reflective of what we know we need as opposed to, you know, numbers that were chosen because of political will.
1: Hopefully we can find something uh, that is closer to the side that uh, CPAWS is behind. Um, really quickly, people uh, who are listening, if they want to help, if they're interested in learning more, uh, you've got some excellent resources on CPAUS. But any other uh, actions or call outs you want our listeners to take if they're really invested in this issue?
2: Well, you know, I'd love for them to visit our website, cpos.org, and you can see our different campaigns there. You can also get in touch with the local chapters in each region. We have a, we have a chapter in almost every province and territory except for Nunavut and PEI. And that's a fantastic way to get involved. You know, the other thing to do is just let it be known to your local government, your regional government, your federal government that you care about conservation, that you care about protecting these wild spaces, um, and that you want them to take action on them. I, I mean, a huge part of our work is getting governments to understand that the people really do care about nature conservation and people want parks and they want these iconic wildlife species that coexist with us to coexist with us For the foreseeable future, you know, no one, no generation wants to, um, you know, be the generation that has to deal with the extinction of caribou or the extirpation of populations from their habitat. So, but government people don't necessarily know that. And so individuals can really help by taking action.
1: Alison, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, It's really been interesting going through the resources on your website. And I really (laughs) hope that we continue to try and push the Canadian government and all of the stakeholders in Canada to protect more land, because it is really important. It is, Rochelle. Thanks so much for having me. And if you want to learn more about Alison Ronson or CPAWS, check out the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, another fine member of CPAWS to school us in ocean conservation. With me now is Candace Newman. She's the National Oceans Program Director at the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. She has a PhD in mapping marine protected area boundaries using satellite imagery and has worked as an international consultant in Africa and Indonesia. She was previously a senior policy advisor at Natural Resources Canada, where she worked for eight years in the energy sector on marine protected areas, other effective area based conservation measures, minimum standards and marine protected areas beyond Canada's jurisdiction. Candice, welcome to Science for the People. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a
0: little quick summary on what your role is at CPOS? Well, as you mentioned, I'm the director for the Oceans Program. So that means primarily I'm responsible for looking at what kind of direction is being taken within the um, international and national realms as it pertains to ocean conservation and trying to identify within those two realms where our organization, CPAUS, can have a really effective impact with regards to establishing marine protected areas and other effective area-based conservation measures. Our program really focuses on protecting oceans, protecting species within spaces, and establishing MPAs, otherwise marine protected areas across Canada, so in the Atlantic, the Pacific, or in the Arctic Ocean. That's one of the interesting
1: things I think about Canada is we have a lot of land, uh, which we talked, we were talking before with Allison about, but we also have a huge amount of ocean border. Uh, we border three major oceans, as you said, the Pacific Atlantic and the Arctic, as well as having the Great Lakes within our boundaries, at least partially within our boundaries as well. And it occurs to me that one of the challenges we I, I expect you have with um, ocean protections is that... The boundaries of control are a bit fuzzier for oceans than it is for land. The land is very clearly defined. And in places, there's actually sort of cut lines that define Canada's land versus the United States land.
0: I feel like it's probably a bit fuzzier for ocean boundaries. It really is. In my experience over the years, protection of the oceans is really challenging because you can't see those lines. You can't see the lines that differentiate jurisdiction That separate territorial waters from the exclusive economic zone. You can't see the extent of our national jurisdiction out in the water. When you stand at on the coast, when you stand on a shoreline and you look out, all you really see is the big wide ocean blue, and you cannot see what areas in what areas certain activities are allowed or not allowed and where conservation is occurring and where it's not. And that is a real challenge for ocean conservation. And it, it's fascinating in many ways, but it makes it a challenge not just for um, a charity organization, but also for the government when they're trying to put in place prohibitions on specific activities within very specific spaces.
1: I, as I was thinking through some of this while I was reading some of the materials from Sea I was really struck with the ocean stuff, how complex and difficult it must be. Not just because the borders are quite literally fluid, um, but also because the, the creatures and the biodiversity in that are are going in and out of those spaces and in and out of those boundaries mm-hmm. in in such a fluid way. I mean, the, the biodiversity and the creatures on land do as well. Um, a wolf doesn't necessarily uh, understand the difference between Canada and the US. Um, but in the water where we can't create cut lines, where we have no signs, where it's easy to just drift over across into someone else's, quote unquote, boundary uh, in the ocean, it must create all kinds of really complex Complex problems
0: it really does and it creates those problems both horizontally and, and vertically mm. so within Canada we have of course um, our shoreline and then we have our intertidal zone and then you can head out 12 nautical miles within your terrestrial zone and then out to 200 nautical miles which is your exclusive economic zone So on the surface, you can have activities, of course, moving horizontally. You will have fish and you will have uh, sharks and jellyfish and turtles um, and dolphins moving horizontally. But you have to remember that they're also moving vertically. And our jurisdiction within Canada is not just horizontal, it's also vertical. So within the ocean, for example, if you were to take a slice of it, There is jurisdiction over the seabed. Then there is jurisdiction within the water itself and then jurisdiction at the sea surface and then in the airspace above that surface. And then there are species that are moving up and down within the water column and then they are moving horizontally. So it makes it an an incredible challenge when trying to protect a certain space. So I think that's when we need to be really creative about what it is we're protecting. And we have to ensure that whatever it is we are trying to protect is protected both horizontally and vertically within the jurisdiction and under the pieces of legislation that we have available to us. And, you know, it's interesting in Canada, I believe that we really have all of those different pieces of legislation and regulation available to us. The challenge comes in trying to integrate them and trying to ensure that we have integrated them effectively so that in the end they are truly conserving the biodiversity or they're truly conserving the species that we want to protect.
1: Looking at the uh Canadian Marine Protection Map in one of the CPAW's uh reports, I believe it was the Oceans Report for 2019, I, I noticed mm-hmm. sort of two things immediately. The first mm. is a lot of the existing protections in Canada really hug the coast very tightly. Um and the other one was uh, very similarly to how we were what we were just talking about is there seem to be given its oceans really oddly specific shaped blocks of ocean Mm -hmm. that are listed as marine refuge, which I sort of looked at and went, how does that work on an ocean? Because it's not kind of a I would have, I think I expected more of a like, sort of blobby fuzzy thing. But those shapes are really like defined and clear. And I am interested in how those shapes came to be in a space that defies shape like that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? Well, the process within Canada it's different between the different the three different federal uh, departments that can establish marine protected areas. So within Canada, we have the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. They can establish Oceans Act marine protected areas. They also establish those marine refuges, which you have probably seen to be defined also as other effective area based conservation measures. Then we have Parks Canada, and the Parks Canada agency can establish national marine conservation areas. And those are areas that we often see out in the water that are extensions of national parks that are established on land. Um, Then we have the Environment and Climate Change Canada, and they can establish marine national wildlife areas. And we have one of those in Canada that's out on the West Coast called the Scott Islands, and that was established back in 2018. And you'll notice between all of the marine protected areas that are established in Canada and the marine refuges that, as you say, they have really different kinds of boundaries and they have sharp edges to them. Um, Some of them are cut in in some places and they're not round, sort of circular donut shapes. They have each one is very different and there's different there's reasons for this. So when the process begins in identifying an oceans act marine protected area, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans begins with um, a science science based process that identifies what are called EBSAs. And EBSAs are ecologically and biologically significant areas. Mm-hmm. And this work was done many years ago. And these are blobs. <laughs> so these are these are the blobs that you're talking about. These are
1: the blobs of my imagination. <laughs> they
0: are. They are. These are areas that have been identified. Um, as being ecologically important or critical um, within the oceans. And this is across Canada, across Canada's oceans. And then from there, the process begins in identifying other characteristics, bio, biodiversity characteristics that are key within those areas. And then in the after that process, you then have a map of um, ecologically important areas, once that is identified, then the Department of Fisheries and Oceans will go through the process of conducting consultations and discussions with stakeholder groups. So the, this includes fishermen. Uh, this will include local communities, nonprofits um, in the industries such as that that may be using the area. For example, tourism, um, if it's further offshore then offshore oil and gas industry. And then there are discussions that happen around what area is most critically important and perhaps what area is being used now by a marine sector, or will that area be used in the future? And there's a bit of a discussion that happens there. It's a consultation to try to identify the best boundary that protects the greatest amount of biodiversity. And you can imagine that through that process, there are some areas that are slivered off and others that are not. And then in the end, you end up with a boundary that is reflective of both an area of high biodiversity, but also discussions and input from a variety of different stakeholders. So every marine protected area um, that is established through the Department of Fisheries and Oceans goes through this process. There are different different processes that are used by Parks Canada or by Environment and Climate Change Canada, um, but it, within Canada, DFO is the department that has established at this point the greatest number of marine protected areas.
1: Interesting. So it's really about the process of identifying a large area and then negotiating what that means from a protection standpoint, given the use, given the needs of the different stakeholders Mm -hmm. that have some kind of stake in that area.
0: Yes, absolutely. You can imagine that you've identified an area in the ocean that has high biodiversity, and you want to protect it. But then you can imagine at the same time that that area or maybe the nearby area is being used periodically for fishing or is being used, the area itself is being used for fishing. And the science has shown that areas on the ocean bottom that have a complex structure to them tend to attract a greater number of fish and species, the greater the structural complexity, the greater the biodiversity that you will have there. So those areas essentially become fishing, great fishing spots. Mm. So you're then in a situation where you want to protect the area and ensure that biodiversity is sustained for the long term. But you also have fishing communities that are using that, that same space to sustain their local communities. So uh, in my experience establishing marine protected areas is a true trade-off like in the true sense of the word you cannot protect the area and prohibit all activities and get lots of get a, and have a high catch and also have high biodiversity you can't have the two so there needs to be a trade-off there needs to be a give and take um and at canadian parks and wilderness society We support the protection of nature within spaces, the protection of the nature within a marine protected area and the prioritization of biodiversity. It also occurs to me that the Arctic
1: presents an interesting um, challenge for marine conservation as well, because um, you get this interesting mix in northern areas of land, ice, and water, um, where the water itself is shifting state in addition to the horizontal and the vertical. Uh, it also changes state in kind of a peculiar way. So I- I'm interested as well when we get Farther north in Canada, and there is a lot of north in Canada. Um, mm-hmm. where, how do we even classify this area? I guess is my question. Does it fall under land conservation or water conservation, or is there a kind of both that we
0: get into inevitably in that area? We do get into both. So there's been a lot of, um, mapping and in Canada's north, and there it has been. Um, mapping both of the land and of the sea and the mapping of the sea has been as you mentioned of the ice itself so we're we're really fortunate now over the years and historically we weren't able to differentiate so easily between the two but now through the use of satellite imagery we can really identify those areas that are, um, that are covered in what's called multi-year sea ice and areas that are land and then the ice above it. And within Canada, we do have the combination of the two. We have the land and then we have ice or we have multi-year ice. And actually it was just last year when Canada established its largest marine protected area in the Arctic, in the high Arctic. And this area includes this multi-year sea ice, and it's been identified as being a place where over the next 20, 25 years will be a northern part of the world where ice will still remain within several decades. So it's, it's it's certainly an incredibly biologically important area. But it's a challenging area as well, because as you can imagine, it's difficult to get to, and it's incredibly far from even some of the most northern airports. But in terms of the ice itself and the movement of that ice, there's a substantial amount of movement and a decrease in ice even more recently. And this is accelerating some of the challenges that people have who are living in the local communities, but who are also trying to collect Information and understand how the biodiversity of those species that live beneath the ice are changing.
1: In particular, with the Arctic, I think this is and if you look at the news or follow uh, science and climate change topics at all, we know that the Arctic is one of the the big key areas where we're seeing and worrying a lot about the effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, with the interplay of ice and water, uh, how much ice is there and the kind of patterns mm-hmm. that we see seasonally of ice coming, you know, ice being created and ice disappearing. So can you give us a, a quick run through of um, of what we're seeing there as a trend and how worrying it is as someone who is kind of living and breathing this a little bit more
0: closely than probably the average person? Mm -hmm. It's changing quickly and it's changing more quickly than we can can really imagine for those of us living in the South. Um, The changes that we're seeing up there are, of course, on the surface, (laughs) uh, they are changes in the amount of sea ice. And so that is first off, and that is obvious, and that's what we're hearing most of the time in the news. But what does that mean exactly? Well, it means that we have ice that was normally there for decades, and ice that was in a similar position, in a similar spatial position year after year, and increasing in thickness and increasing in in sort of the, the stiffness of it as well. But that's changing so slowly, that ice, the layers of ice are melting away. And so this is causing more movement. And when you have more movement, you have not just these larger icebergs breaking off and moving down along our coast, but you also have movement along the shoreline. So you have this erosion happening more regularly along the shoreline and carving away at the shoreline. You also have routes that were in the past um, completely closed to shipping and now increasingly they are opening and they are opening not just for one period in the year but throughout the whole year. So this is increasing access for shipping up through Canada's uh, Northwestern Passage. And that in itself is creating challenges because... As we were talking about earlier, we have the land and the water mapped, but what we don't have mapped are safe shipping routes for ships that are traveling through these now more recently opening channels and passages. So there's a significant amount of work that is happening now by the federal department and by academic institutions to try to understand and map the seabed within the north so that these ships can pass through more frequently and safely. There's also changes that we see happening at local levels. So we see that communities that would normally use ice roads and that would normally travel across the ice in the winter and during other seasons, being unable to do so safely. So there are different um, different means that are being used. So we see actually an increase in local um, aircraft usage to get around because traditional ways of moving around are just not as safe as they used to be. One of the biggest
1: challenges I'm sure with the Arctic is even once we've protected an area, um, it really still potentially struggles with biodiversity because climate change and greenhouse gas emissions emissions are everybody's problem. I mean, even if Canada could get really a good handle on our own greenhouse gas emissions, let's, you know, envision a perfect world where Canada could eliminate our own. Even if Canada could Um, do a ton better. The Arctic is still under major threat because the impact on it is not, like you say, it's remote. It's not like it's getting high tourism. It's not like it's getting high traffic. It's not even, especially the high Arctic, getting um, a ton of um, resource extraction and stuff like that. One of the biggest challenges we have for protecting that is it's not something a single government can designate a border around and say, this, this we shall protect. It's, It's a really challenging one. Uh, as soon as you get up north.
0: Yeah, I agree. And in a perfect world, we would see those Arctic states come together and investigate and assess the biodiversity within the Arctic and identify protection measures such as marine protected areas or marine refuges or other tools and together see those states establish a marine protected area network across the Arctic. Like I I think that would be such a fabulous intergovernmental means of cooperation as well as protection of our biodiversity um, within an within an environment that is changing so quickly and that we will need to we will need to watch and support and study for years to come.
1: Yeah, I think one of the other big challenges as you as you just called out is because of its remote nature, because it's so isolated in such a hostile environment, even doing basic monitoring
0: is really tough. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it is getting getting on the ground. There is a real challenge. Though at the same time, um, i at the same time, it's It's an area where we can actually use satellite imagery to map the extent and the spatial location of ice. And we can see how that changes through time. Now, that's one thing to be able to map it and and see those changes. And then it's another thing to take action and do something about it. And those are two very different issues. But in terms of understanding the change, we can understand a lot of that right now, but one of the um, I'd say drawbacks or challenges to using satellite imagery, particularly to map sea ice, is that it can be influenced heavily, depending, of course, on the kind of uh, satellite imagery you're using. But a lot of the satellite imagery we we see in the news, in newspapers, and online, um, is a type of satellite imagery that can be easily influenced by dust mm-hmm. in the atmosphere. So if you have forest fires. If you have uh, dust particles and you have a substantial level of them within the atmosphere, they actually can have quite a significant impact on our ability to interpret the satellite imagery. So it's interesting with forest fires happening recently within Australia, the, the dust and ash from those fires will undoubtedly have an impact on the satellite imagery that's taken in the Arctic.
1: Wow. Literally things around the world happening right now can impact Mm -hmm. our ability to even monitor the situation. That is, Mm -hmm. that is a thing that is um, an important thing to remember is the
0: impact we have on each other, even across the world. Absolutely. And we've been, I think it's probably not even something we'd even be thinking about. But I know that when scientists are capturing imagery of, of the Arctic now, Um, in the past, they've had challenges with dust interfering with the signal. Well, the more dust there is, the more challenging it's going to be. And this is the same case in when we have uh, volcanic eruptions, and there's soot and other ash and uh, materials that are put into the atmosphere. Um, So it's going to be a challenge when we're looking at monitoring the, uh, the Arctic and that change in sea ice over time. And I think it's it's certainly a real concern for all of us.
1: So this is going to sound like an outrageous question, I'm sure. But as <laughs> I was reading some of the
0: materials
1: um, that CPAWS has in one of the reports, mm-hmm. um, I just have to ask because I can't not. Um, it says that Canada didn't have many ocean protections in place until 2017 and specifically calls out it was like 1% or less. Is that number
0: mm-hmm. accurate? It, it is. That's correct. We had less than 1% in 2017. And so it's only been within the last three years that we have been able to, to advance so far as to reach almost 14% protection, which we have now. So, That leads me to my very
1: next question, which is why did Canada suck so much at this before 2017? Like, that is a shocking number to me, in particular, in Canada, for some reason. I don't know why I just said that. But you know what I mean? Like, I found that number so shocking that I had
0: to ask the dumb question. No, it's a very good question. And it's it's sad if you think about it, given that we have such an immense ocean and the longest coastline in the world. And our oceans are full of biodiversity and so many different and interesting species from coast to coast to coast. And you'd think, why haven't we been protecting those areas? And I think it's a true reflection of um, mandate and political will and individuals who will champion marine conservation in Canada. And those that political will came about in 2017 and those champions, they came to the surface and they took Canada from less than 1% to 14% today. And Canadians have really a lot to be proud of. Um, and I think at the same time, it really shows the importance of people speaking up for marine conservation.
1: Yeah, um, that fast shift in there really, for me, it drove home two things. The first is how important it is to care and how mm-hmm. much caring can actually make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. and how quickly it can make a difference because from 1%, I think you said to 13%? 14, 14%. Almost,
0: four, almost 14. Yeah. In,
1: in what, two and a half years, three years is, Uh, That's right, is insane to me. But also, I think the other thing that is both a hopeful thing and a really positive thing, but also what that pings in me is that that idea of fast change is how fragile some of these protections could be to Mm -hmm. people not caring. And that Mm -hmm. also I found really concerning about reading some of these reports is that speed made me hopeful, but also incredibly worried (laughs)
0: Yeah, it, it is a sign of, of, I'd say, perhaps the good and uh, the not so good, uh, the good that when there is will, there is a way. Um, it demonstrates that in Canada, we have the tools, the legislative tools, the regulatory tools available to us right now to put in place these marine protection measures immediately. It also shows that these processes can take time when there are roadblocks and when people are not interested or when people have other interests or when other um, marine sectors are pushing back. It really shows the importance of um, of Folks, understanding the value biodiversity can bring to economies, they can bring to coasts, it can bring bring to our overall well-being as Canadians. And I'm very excited um, as we look forward. I'm really hopeful that we will see um, more marine protected areas, marine protected area networks put in place rapidly. Um, there are concerns, of course, around... How quickly they can be put in the water, how quickly protection measures for specific species, critical habitat areas can be put in the water. But I'm, I'd say I'm more hopeful than not um, because we have the tools, because you see Canadians, local communities, stakeholders, marine sectors, all recognizing, increasingly recognizing the value of protecting spaces in the ocean so
1: we're just about out of time. But one of the things I did want to ask you about was the broader oceans. Um, Because mm-hmm. when we think about land, land is something mm-hmm. that almost all of it within the world is kind of claimed by some kind of government. They mm-hmm. may have greater or lesser interest in protecting that land. But by and large, there's someone whose quote unquote job it is to decide that or who to manage the land in some way, whether they do a good job of it or a bad job of it set that aside Mm. for just a second. The oceans, that's not the case. There are Mm. huge portions of the ocean that are effectively common spaces worldwide. They aren't under anybody's specific jurisdiction. And Mm. one of the things that I'm interested in is, are there any international protections in place for some of those areas because a lot of the biodiversity we see in particular in the oceans has such massive ranges that it's really difficult to kind of solve some of this problem or feel like we're making a dent in it when Mm -hmm. if you look at the ranges of some You know, take, uh, one of the charismatic megafauna, like the whale, right? The, the Mm -hmm. ranges that whales travel through are so massive that the vast majority of, of their ecosystem that they experience in their day to day lives is in international waters. So Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how the international community or what kind of efforts are made to try and protect international water areas that are really important, um, or even if there
0: are any? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So when you look at the globe, and you look at the ocean space, approximately 40% of that ocean space is within a state's national jurisdiction. The remaining portion 60% is in an area of what we call the high seas. And within the high seas, only around 1% of that is actually protected through a measure such as a marine protected area. The jurisdiction out in the high seas is under what's called UNCLOS. It's the United Nations Convention for the Law of the Sea. And under that, there is a special body that was established several years ago with the mandate to establish an international treaty that would speak to a number of things, including the protection of spaces, So the conversations have evolved over the last several years involving states from across the world to come to an agreement around what kinds of marine protected areas could be established in the high seas, who would ensure that activities that were not allowed in those spaces were um, required to pay some sort of fee if they were occurring in that space. And that is all to be decided, we hope, sometime this year. And this goes back to your question about, well, what about species that cross these boundaries, that cross boundaries between the national, a state's national waters and the high seas? Because as it is right now, most states are protecting the biodiversity that are from, that are located within their coast out to 200 nautical miles. But we know in the ocean that these species are all over the place. So how do we ensure that they're protected from the very start of their route to the very end? And we hope that this can be done through the establishment of this treaty under UNCLOS. Now, when you think about that, it's actually quite a big ask. (laughs) It's a lot to coordinate. There's a lot of work required there. But I guess on the plus side... The science is there. We have a lot of information already to be able to put protection measures in place. What is going to be required are individuals and states to champion this effort and to ensure that these protection measures get into the right places as quickly as possible.
1: Hey, I'm so happy to hear that there is something underway now to try and address this Problem Because it is a problem. Um, And the other piece is I can't even imagine how complex those negotiations are now and will almost certainly be long into the future uh, in order to figure out what areas are going to be protected in international waters from whom and what and that kind of Mm. thing. Because as soon as you get Mm. more stakeholders in play, and how many more stakeholders could you possibly have, other than all the countries in the world? In a single kind of decision, I would imagine that that is a very, very slow moving ship uh, to try and turn.
0: There have been discussions in place for some time now, but states are very hopeful and getting very close to coming to an agreement. We can protect our whales and um, species with high movement patterns as best we can within our national waters. But as soon as they leave our national waters, um, you know, essentially they're out of our control. Their protection is out of our control unless there are these international global treaties in place that ensure their protection. Um, it's an enormous undertaking, but it, it's absolutely necessary. And within Canada, we actually have a really interesting um Story out on our east coast where we have a continental shelf that goes beyond 200 nautical miles, and so we're in a situation where we have submitted our extension to the UN Secretariat and we are claiming an area out to the extent of our continental shelf, which is beyond 200 nautical miles. But in the water above it, we have activities occurring that are essentially in the high seas, but on the seabed we have activities that are under national jurisdiction. So this is off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. It gets quite complicated when we have different kinds of activities occurring and being regulated under different uh, governing bodies.
1: My eyes went so wide there when you talked about the different vertical stuff again. It's the vertical in the ocean that really just adds that extra component, isn't it? It Um, is. Candace we heard a little bit from uh, Allison at the end of my discussion with her about what individuals can do um when they care about this issue to try and take action mm-hmm. or institute change or push change do you have any additional thoughts or any parting
0: thoughts you want to leave our listeners today i really liked Allison's suggestions and i really i agree that it's important that individuals reach out to their local um, government officials, as well as federal government officials, to inform them and to tell them that they care about the oceans, that they care about nature. Um, we, We really feel that it's important that if we're frustrated by some activity we've seen taken or if we're supportive of an an activity we've seen taken, it's really important to let our government officials know how we feel about it. And when it comes to the oceans, those individuals, they can connect with the very federal departments that are responsible for establishing marine protected areas and marine refuges. And that includes the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, Environment and Climate Change Canada, and the Parks Canada Agency.
1: Candice, thank you so much. It's been really great talking with you. And uh, I've learned a lot about pause and prepping for this interview and uh, <laughs> a lot about uh, CPAUS in talking with you and Allison today. Really appreciate your time.
0: Oh, well, thanks for having
1: me. I really appreciate it. And if you want to learn more about Candice Newman or CPAUS, again, and as always, we have oodles of links for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me, Rochelle Saunders.